There is not a one-size-fits-all solution to leadership. Discover your inspiration to lead by hearing from those who are in the trenches each day, leading themselves and leading others. We will learn about their unique leadership style and identify the shared qualities between those who do it tremendously well. Welcome to the Lead with Empower podcast. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Lead with Empower podcast. We have uh, another great guest. We're on a bit of a hot streak here today. The gentleman I'm about to introduce you to has almost 40 years of coaching experience at the college and the professional levels. He's the proud owner of two Super Bowl rings and excited to introduce Coach Kevin Gilbride. He joins the Lead with Empower podcast today. Coach, how are you? I'm doing great, Dan. Good to speak, be speaking with you. Good to speak with you as well. I thank you for, uh, for hopping on with us today. Um, how's, uh, how's, how are you? How's the family? Everybody healthy with the, uh, the whole COVID situation going on? Everybody's doing great. All right. And are you staying out of trouble since the XFL season ended? Well, uh, that, that one I don't want to get into. <laughs> what, in all seriousness. I don't want to unveil how many, uh, how many uh, transgressions I've committed uh, <laughs> with this COVID-19 uh, restrictions. <laughs> in, in all seriousness, you're going from ha- having to go like 1,000 miles per hour. You're in the middle of a season, then it, and then it stops. And, I, you know, we had a couple phone calls leading up to today. How, how have you – what have you been doing to kind of – you know, put, put, uh, get through the, get through each day and, and kind of pass time, I guess, since the season ended. Well, when the season ended, uh, it, it's, it really was kind of remarkable. We were getting ready to play, uh, uh, Houston who was undefeated and we had just had our biggest win. We had just won two in a row. We're tied for first. So we got our biggest game of the year, uh, coming up that Saturday and Thursday, I get a call from the league telling me that, uh, the, the biggest problem we have right now is that the governor of New Jersey doesn't want to allow a crowd in there. And the Lee, of course, that was going to be our biggest crowd. They expected 25, 30,000 people. Uh-huh. We, I guess, had gotten around 20 the first two games. So they were excited to have the crowd in, but they hadn't made a decision whether to honor the governor's request or not. And then I get a call at 530 saying, hey, forget it. We're letting the crowd in. We're all excited, ready to go. Six o'clock, I get a call. We're not sure. 6.30, I get a call, the league's done. So, I mean, that's how quickly it happened. I mean, it was amazing. So the next morning, I, you know, informed the guys, and I, you know, they had till the, the end of the weekend to get out of there. So I hung around, uh, you know, helping make sure all the transportation was done, what have you. And then I went up back to Rhode Island yep. uh, to be with my wife and children and, uh, and uh, the grandkids. So I was going to spend two weeks up here with them, and then my wife and I were going to go down to our place in Florida. Okay. They closed down the gym here on Wednesday. And when they did, I immediately just uh, said, the heck with this. I'm going down to Florida where I can um, live and, uh, and, and do the things that I love to do. You know, play golf, ride the bike, do some uh, exercises. And uh, down there, things were just done a lot more. Uh, freely so you were allowed to do a lot more uh, so I you could live more of a normal life I guess is the best way to phrase it and so I took advantage of that as quickly as I could and then I finally came back about three weeks ago uh, just to we missed our grandkids so we came back to you know to be around them and of course the timing's good because now they're finally starting to open up some things 
up here in Rhode Island, uh, and it's more closely resembling the, the opportunities that were available to us in uh, Florida. Great. How's the golf game? Are you hitting them straight or hitting a lot of them? Uh, both. You know what? You hit a couple <laughs> that are good that keep you coming back, and uh, and I actually adjusted the uh, loft on my driver, which added about 30, 40 yards. Uh, I was coming out much too low, so I'm excited right now. I'm I'm addicted. I'm trying to get out there as often as I can, and I combine that with the fishing now that I'm able to get up and do uh, go out for some stripers uh, up here in Rhode Island. So life is good. That's great. Now on the on the topic of fishing, I heard an interesting story from a guy that we both know very well uh, about a fishing trip with some college buddies, and there was only one guy that caught a fish on that trip. That sounds like an apocryphal story told by your father. That's what it sounds like. He, he, he did catch a fish, but uh, they, we all caught him because the captain, me, put us on a lot of fish. Now, there you go. some of them were bigger than, than, uh, than, uh, than others, but uh, we had a good day. We weren't actually striper fishing. We, we went out for a fluke that day. I had a bunch of inexperienced fishermen, and I did not want to take a chance of losing my gear going for stripers. So... We just, I figured they couldn't, they couldn't mess it up too badly if all we did was drop it down to the bottom and, uh, and pick it up once in a while just to make sure that the fish saw your bait that's and right. uh, things worked out okay. That's a, a testament of your leadership right out of the gate because anybody that can get my father, who I don't think has ever touched a fishing pole in his life prior to that day to, to get one on the hook, is, uh, that's a win right there. No, he actually did, did very well. I think, I think he caught three or four of them. Uh, I, and if I remember correctly, there were five of us on, on my boat. And uh, if I remember correctly, he had the biggest fluke and maybe even the biggest sea bass. All right. All right. So, so he it's did confirmed. Well, well again, not, not quite the way he told it, but uh, <laughs> he may have had the biggest ones. <laughs> all right. I'll have to take, all, take back all my trash talk uh, about him there. So, um, you're from North Haven, Connecticut, and uh, you spent uh, your college time as an athlete at Southern Connecticut State University. Describe Kevin Gilbright as a young athlete. What, what position did you play? And give us a little insight as to kind of what you were like as a, as a young athlete at the high school and college levels. Well, uh, you know, North Haven, of course, back then everybody played everything. So I played all three sports, football, basketball, baseball. And I was captain of the basketball and baseball team, and I played quarterback uh, at North Haven. When I graduated, I actually went to the United States Merchant Marine Academy for a year. Uh, and, you know, I love the water. I've always loved the water and grew up with my grandfather who had a boat and just adored being out there as much as I could. But my dad was a high school teacher and coach, and that's kind of what I really wanted to do. And much to his chagrin, I wound up uh, after, leaving after the first year at, at Kings Point, United States Merchant Marine Academy, and I transferred to Southern Connecticut sat out a year and then played football and baseball there and uh, started my career as a starting quarterback and uh, got knocked around in our opener. And uh, a guy came in uh, who replaced me, another sophomore, and uh, did very well. So I got pushed over to tight end and I was fortunate to stay as a, in the starting lineup uh, with the assurance that I'd go back to quarterback if, uh, if he ever messed up. <laughs> and uh, he did get hurt as well about the fourth game, and then a senior came in. So we had three good quarterbacks, and we won the last four or five games, finished up the year great, and, and then stayed at tight end the next two years. So things, things, it was a great career. We, more than anything, 
what was great about it is the associations that I had at Southern. I, I'm still great friends with with uh, so many of the guys that won our team. We did not have many many in our class. Uh, it was 13 guys that uh, that finished up, but many of them went into high school teaching and coaching, and uh, some of us went into college coaching. Uh, I had really only wanted to be a high school coach. That was my goal. Uh, I, my dad, I thought, had the, the greatest life. Uh, one could have. I watched the, uh, you know, the pleasure he got from teaching and coaching, and I said, "That's that's what I want to do." Unfortunately, he passed away in my sophomore year at at Southern, and uh, our head coach Harry Shea kind of, you know, pushed me in the direction of going into college, saying I could always come back to high school, but it would be much more difficult to start in high school and then move up to the college ranks. So. I followed his advice and uh, sent out a ton of letters. I'll never forget my senior year, uh, that mid-semester break. Uh, I typed over 100 uh, resumes and letters of introduction to different colleges, both to the head coaches and to the physical education departments, and uh, tried to you know, generate some interest and, and, and see if I could possibly get a graduate assistantship somewhere. When all that effort uh, netted me about five opportunities, nothing guaranteed, but possibilities, and then eventually I hooked on it at Idaho State, and that's where uh, that's where I first started coaching. That's great. So you were a phys ed phys ed guy once you went to Southern, and uh, you know initially yes. starting yeah. with the idea of high school co- uh, coaching and teaching, and then um, took advantage of an opportunity. I guess some advice from your your college coach at the time. That's great. Um, yeah, no, it, 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 the high school teaching and coaching was what I wanted. I mean, that's what I had seen. I saw the impact that my dad had on, on young people's lives, and I saw the pleasure he had. And as a kid, to, you know, to be around it, all that. We, My brother and I both got into coaching. My, I'm the oldest of seven kids, and the, okay. next in line was was my brother Tim, and he's been the basketball coach now at Bowdoin, I think, 35 years. So, you know, we, 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 were, we were hooked just watching the things he did, but – both of us wound up when our dad passed away for whatever reason, getting into college and never really coached in high school. Now, did your dad teach in North Haven as well uh, in North Haven public schools when you were a kid? He did. He did. did. He was an unusual kind combination. He was a math teacher and coached football and basketball. Oh, wow. That's uh, a good buddy of mine. And I know we're not supposed to co-mingle being a Southern Connecticut and a Springfield college guy, but a good buddy of mine is actually a phys ed teacher at North Haven high school. Now he loves it there. Um, Great place. It is. It is. And we do a lot of leadership programs with the middle school kids there too. And it's always been a pleasure to head down there and and do those big field day type events. Um, So we're looking, you go Idaho state and there it's just about 15 years at the college level, and it looks like five, five different spots. What, what did you learn about yourself in those early coaching years, both as a leader and, and, and as a coach, as you were just trying to get some traction going there? Yeah, well, the first few years, you're, you're, you're just trying to get your master's degree because you know that will enhance or expand your opportunities to, to hook on. A lot of the schools required a master's degree, and again, the, the intent was uh, I'll probably get back to high school football, and that's I wanted. You know, again, enlarge the pool of opportunities that I that I could get. And at Idaho State, I I, I actually my my uh, graduate assistantship was under the auspices of the phys ed department. Uh, the okay. coaches got me it, but it, that's 
that's where my responsibility primarily was. So even though I went there to coach football and get my master's, I taught some PE classes and, and somewhat surprisingly, they made me, uh, as part of my duties, coach the women's basketball team. So oh, nice. I, yeah, so I, I got that and uh, that opportunity, which turned out to be, uh, much better than I had anticipated. And, uh, and we, uh, we, we had a terrific year and, and, uh, actually was selected as the Idaho state coach of the year, uh, which for coaching a women's basketball team. And our athletic director there was somewhat of a visionary offered me a chance to stay and become the full-time, you know, uh, head basketball coach, a women's basketball coach would let me coach football, but my primary responsibilities were going to have to be with the, with the basketball team, with the women's basketball team. And, uh, and he was going to pay me the same as the head football coach and the same as the men's basketball coach. And of course, I started out making 2,200 bucks as a GA. So that was very appealing. Uh, $20,000 sounded like a millionaire, but my wife and I were East coast people and we just wanted to get back East. So the, the opportunity I had was really the the full-time coaching was at Tufts. And, and uh, even though I had played offensive football in college uh, and in high school, um, all my coaching starting on the defensive side. So I was, I was coaching, uh, helping to coach the secondary. Then I became the linebacker coach at Idaho state. And then I became the linebacker coach at, uh, at Tufts university. And then, then the defense coordinator at AIC. And, uh, I think all those things leading up to becoming the head football coach at uh, Southern Connecticut, uh, were probably the, you know, the best, um, most fortuitous years of my coaching because your growth is is exponential I mean you just you learn how to deal with with young men you learn about motivating them you learn about uh, implementing practices and uh, and procedures and protocols that help to grow them and develop them not only as football players but as you know as young men using the football experience to help them, you know, achieve uh, a level of maturity that maybe they didn't have before in terms of work ethic, in terms of mental toughness, in terms of uh, striving for goals and working with well with, with teammates and, and uh, subjugating their own individual, you know, concerns for the, for the good of the group. And, yep. you know, you don't start out, you know, knowledgeable those things, even though you took classes on how to do those things it's quite different when you actually have to do them uh, in, in the real world. And uh, so that those were invaluable. And, and I was fortunate in that being on the defensive side exposed me to a completely foreign way of looking at things from what I had been doing on the offensive side, which really proved to be, you know, just in, incredibly uh, beneficial uh, with my career, which, I mean, most people from the professional level on only only think of me as an offensive coach or a head coach but not realizing that my background and foundation came on the defensive side once I got to southern Connecticut then that was a uh just an incredible opportunity to I was 28 years old when I got the head job and of course back then you you think you're you're an old man, you know, you think you know it all, but it was, I realized soon uh, that I didn't know very much at all. I certainly didn't have a lot of knowledge about uh, building uh, relationships with, with the various departments within the university, uh, which would be 
you know, crucial to, to developing a program, not just, not just building a team, but developing a program. And I, I often likened it to, to that, you know, the coaching of the X and O's was such a small part of it. Uh, it, it was a global approach that, you know, you, you had to learn to deal with the admissions people, the financial aid people, the professors uh, that you knew you were going to need to, to develop uh, relationships so that they, you know, kept an eye on your players, that they were there to assist them to, in their growth and development as students. And, you know, it was just an incredible thing. But we we, we had at our disposal some really special people uh, that helped me uh, to, to learn the ropes, so to speak, in, yeah. in terms of how do you not only survive at a place like Southern Connecticut where you're playing against all these scholarship programs and you, you are not a athletically scholarship program or athletically funded program from, from a scholarship perspective, but, uh, you know, the, the A.B. Grossfelds, the Bobby DeCranians of the world were – were, uh, you know, had been, you know, worldwide successes. You know, A.B. had been, the you know, the Olympic gymnastics coach yeah. and had built the program at Southern Connecticut where, you know, they, we were Division One in gymnastics and he rarely lost. And seemingly Bob DeCranian with the soccer program was going to the Final Four every year, if not winning the national championships. And, you know, they, they were just uh, incredibly uh, – nurturing in terms of, of, of t telling you the things that needed to be done in order to succeed there. And that was just a great, you know, we had incredible success. We were a bunch of young guys that didn't realize that, you know, we were not, you know, equipped with the same, uh, the same resources of the, the opposition and, and shouldn't be winning, just said, Hey, we're going to win. You know, yeah. we just figured we'd, we'd get it done somehow. And, uh, and we did, and we still, I'm very proud to say, have the highest winning percentage of anybody that's ever been at Southern Connecticut, and that five years was was a really terrific, terrific time in, in my family's life and certainly my life. Uh, the, the kids that we dealt with, uh, you know, just still have a, an incredible feeling for and, and towards those guys, and, and I love when I hear from them still today, but... One of the things that happened, to answer your question, Dan, is that you get a little, I don't know, I guess the best word is uh, um, antsy or, or wondering why you're not getting a head job at a higher level where you get the opportunity to prove yourself at the next stage. And, yeah. you know, here I, here I am part of a program that's beating these teams that their head coaches are getting these Division One jobs, and, uh, and I'm not. And, and I couldn't figure out why. And finally, I came to the conclusion that as, as terrific as it was, maybe I got the head job too young. And maybe my resume wasn't quite as enriched as it needed to be in terms of Division One coaching experience or professional yeah. coaching experience. And I had finished second or third in a couple of, you know, uh, efforts to get head jobs at these Division One colleges. And all these guys that were beating me out for those positions had been in professional football or had been coaching at Division One level. So I finally came to the conclusion, you know what, if I'm going to move on, um, you know, and, and quench the, this restlessness that I had within me, then I probably had to fill that chink in my resume. I had to get to the Division One job. So I, I said, you know, the next opportunity I get offered, I'll take where I'd been given a couple chances, but I said, I'll take it. 
So I wound up having a chance to go up to Canada as a guest coach. Okay. And I took those opportunities in the summer vacation rather than, you know, in spending time with the family, uh, <laughs> which was tough to explain. I wound up going up to Saskatchewan, the Saskatchewan Rough Riders, and working as a guest coach, as a linebacker coach, and calling the defense. I mean, the, the experience was phenomenal. And I wound up being offered a job there, and I, I just said no. But the next year, uh, this was my, after my second year, uh, an offensive line coach that had been at Saskatchewan Rough Riders went to the Ottawa Rough Riders and recommended me to the head coach there. And he offered me a chance to come up and interview for a job with, as the offense coordinator uh, with the Ottawa Rough Riders. And I took it, and, and it, it changed the whole direction of, of my coaching career because not only did I go to, to, to the pros and step out of the college ranks, uh, but he wanted to install the run and shoot offense, yeah. which I did not know. I had no clue about, but I was certainly willing to, to learn. And then I wound up developing a relationship with uh, Mouse Davis, the inventor of the run and shoot. And, uh, and then June Jones, who was his, you know, his most avid disciple and had coached with him at the Denver Gold out in the old USFL days. And those guys were just, you know, incredible resources and, and it helped me to grow and learn that offense. And it was a little bit of a challenge. Here you are at pro football level, and I'm learning a new offense, <laughs> and I'm learning it through tape and, and discussions over the phone. But the second year, the USFL folded. Yep. And uh, June Jones came up, worked as, my, as our receiver coach, and so that just expanded my knowledge that much more. And at the end of the year, our head coach got let go. So I went to the Montreal Alouettes, and June wound up going down to the Houston Oilers as the yep. quarterback coach. Yep. And two years later, um, he, he went with Mouse to the Detroit Lions, and he recommended to Jerry Glanville, the, the head coach there, that the only guy that could do this offense besides him was, uh, was Kevin Gilbride. And that led to the to the opportunity to get to the professional ranks at the, at the national football league level. And the rest is history, as they say. <laughs> so that was, uh, it looks like 1989, you become the quarterbacks coach for the Oilers. What was the, yep. what was the biggest change going from, and I know you had the stop in Canada, but going from the college level of coaching to the NFL, um, what was the biggest change, biggest challenge for you, not only going from the defensive side of the ball to the offensive side of the ball, but just you're dealing with pro athletes now. You're dealing with guys that do this for, for a living as opposed to guys that are doing it as, as part of their you know, student athlete career. I found that, you know, the, you know the, it was, again, it was in, incredible. Just, I mean, almost beyond a dream opportunity <laughs> to not only get to the, to the, you know, to the National Football League level, but there was no coordinator there at Houston. So you as quarterback coach were the de facto coordinator. So, I mean, the opportunity to just come, out, to yeah. come in and, and just take over, you know, this team was, I mean, it, it's almost beyond, uh, I mean, if you, if you 
put that script in front of a Hollywood producer, he'd say, this is too unrealistic. This will never happen. <laughs> but it did. And not only was it, was it an incredible opportunity, but we were a really, really talented football team. Yep. And, uh, so, and, and especially on the offensive side. And so I, I guess what I, what I thought, you know, that when you first get there, it, you're, you're overwhelmed with the glamour of the, the National Football League and the opportunity, and you just can't – you're almost giddy with your, your excitement <laughs> that, that, this is, that this chance came. But I can frankly say to you that within a very short period of time, you know, that all evaporated, and it was just like anywhere else. And whether or not this is the approach that all people take, it's one that I took and the one that I've advocated many, many times since uh, a couple of years ago, the national football league uh, had a bunch of us old timers come in and speak <laughs> to all the young coaches uh, that had been coaching under five years. And they brought them into the New York jets facility. And we all got up and chance to, to talk. And I was the first one and, and uh, to speak. And then Al grow and uh, you know, the former, you know, head coach of the Jets and yep. University of Virginia and longtime defensive coordinator and what have you. And then he spoke. And then uh, a couple of the offensive line coaches at Jim McNally and Howard Mudd had both coached more than 30 years in the National Football League. A bunch of guys like that. Dave yep. Wonstad, who had coaches. You know, there was about eight of us. And Bill Polian spoke from an administrative point of view. And, of course, he's probably the most successful um, GM, general right? manager yeah. in history. Yeah. Uh, so I just said to them, and this is in answer to your question, I treated them just exactly the same as I had treated, you know, I cope, my approach was still the same that I was going to start from, you know, scratch and I was going to build them up as if they didn't know anything. And we were going to do everything, um, to advance, you know, embracing the fundamentals and, and the being technically, you know, demanding of them what, yeah. what, what I expected and what I wanted and what we were going to work like crazy to, uh, to accomplish and achieve. And, uh, and, and I was just going to, I was just going to be as much of an educator and teacher as I could and, and really not modify very much what I did at all, except you were with them so much more that you were able to go so much further with them uh, and, and I found after the year, through the years, you know, after, after 25 years in the national football league, you know, the, um, you know, guys that would say, you know, like to, to quote Plexico Burris telling a receiver after coming out of one of our unit meetings, you want to, you want to grow, you want, you want to, uh, <laughs> you want to stay in this league, you, you get better and you develop, you yeah. want to do that. Listen to what he says. He said that's, and I didn't hear him say that, but his receiver coach said to me, you should hear Plexico, you know, just tell, he says, you know, he, all over those guys. What my point is, is that, and this is what I would share with, with these young coaches is that you're, you can be friends with them or friendly with them. But the bottom line is your responsibility is to make them better is yep. to, to, to help them grow and help them develop. And that's what they expect. That's what they demand is that you make them as good as they can. Now, whatever the motivation is, you'd like to think it's altruistic to help the team win and be successful and what have you. But it may be just 
so that they stay in the league longer and make more money and, yeah. you know, have a longer career. But whatever it is, if you can't help them become better players, they're really, they'll embrace your friendship, but they really, what they expect and demand is that you help them become better at their craft. And that's what your responsibility is. It's not to be their friends. Now, if you can be, if, if by being friendly and professional, you can, you can help to um, further that aim or that objective, then that's, that's the way to go. Whatever, whatever works within the framework of your, you know, your personality, your, your, the way you go about your business. But the bottom line is the most important element is, can you make that person a better player? And then by doing that as a coach, not only have I contributed to his growth and development, which again, was what, what I originally wanted to do at the high school level. Now I'm just <laughs> yeah. doing it at the pro level is that maybe I'm, maybe I'm helping them to develop still as people, even though it's much, much different at it because they're men they're, you know, you're, you're some, you know, some of these guys that I'm coaching are 35, 36, 38 years old, 40 yeah. years old. Uh, but as, as I've said to these young coaches, here I am in my 60s, and I still can be influenced and motivated and and excited by by a good teacher, a good you know a good instructor, a guy that you know gives me some something that I can grab onto, and so that's that's what I tried to do is to help these guys develop and and then of course as a coach you're you're, you're still doing whatever you can at the pro level. You got to win because gotta you're win. not winning. Yeah. You're not you're not you're not going to stay. You know, it, it matter how loftier or idealistic you are, if you're not winning, you're not staying. How difficult is that to find the balance? It, you know, because there's a couple of different factors that play. And obviously, you're you know you you have a family, and their livelihood is dependent on that. Um, you have these, this group of men that you're trying to grow and develop. How, how, how tough is that to find that balance of, yep, want to help influence them as men. They need, to, they need to be better for the team to be successful, but also for their personal career advancement. They need to be better so I, you know, I can continue doing what I'm doing. That's a lot of you know, balls to juggle, as they say. How do you go about balancing that? Um, you, you want to have a positive impact on these guys to help them out, but you also want to make sure that, you know, you stay in the spot that you're at for as long as possible. It, it is extraordinarily challenging. It yeah. is extremely difficult. And what you soon realize uh, as you climb up the ladder, as opposed to the more uh, theoretically pure at the lower levels, uh, where where there's there's more of an appreciation for the fact that you're helping to grow or develop or or advance these people as you know your players as as, as young men at the pro level the higher up you go it is much more cutthroat even at the major college level it's, yeah. it's just much more cutthroat and the bottom line is if you don't win you're gone and the fact that it may not be your fault. In fact, in many instances, it's not. And I, and I, and that was one of the things I shared. If you're looking for logic or, or, <laughs> or uh, kindness or what have you, you're in the wrong business because it doesn't exist here. Uh, it, it, it's a bottom line business. And if you don't win, you're gone. And the fact that it really wasn't your fault, it may have been the general manager who selected those players yeah. Or, a, or an offensive coordinator who, who wanted to employ a certain 
um, style of offense that maybe didn't didn't uh, did not focus or feature your particular position so your position maybe is not quite as productive as somebody thought it should be so they're getting rid of you you had you bore no responsibility for it but the bottom line you didn't get it done I I, I'll give you one quote I won't tell you who did it and but I uh, this is this will give you a great insight uh, they when I was with the Giants they wanted to select uh, you know a certain DB uh, a veteran and you know the the position coach said you know he he you don't we don't want him he's he's not a good guy he's a selfish self-centered non-working uh disruptive person that'll do everything he can to to uh, to affect in a deleterious way our our unit our group our team blah blah blah, blah all those things we don't want him they 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 picked him they 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 paid him as a free agent yeah. A year later, he's doing all the things that this coach said he was going to do if they had selected him, <laughs> and they fired the coach. And he yeah. said, "I told." And they, their explanation was, "Well, because so and so, you know, you never got him to do that." And he said, "I told you <laughs> the way he was," and here was the answer. Oh, Doesn't matter. We hired you. We hired you to make him do it, and you didn't get him to do it, so you're gone. So, I mean, that's how – there's a lot of uh, C, CYA that goes on. And <laughs> it, it just, you got to just realize that's the way it is. You know, we have a son that's in the coaching. He's Right now he's out. You know, Chicago Bears didn't have the offensive production that they wanted to have or expected to have uh, last year. So they, the head coach fired the offensive staff. Now, meanwhile, they're doing what the head coach's offense. It's his offense. He's yeah. the one calling the plays. But it doesn't matter. It, yeah. It's just the way it is. I mean, it, it it doesn't mean it's right. It doesn't mean it's logical. It's certainly not fair. It's just the way it is. And you have to accept it. And it's what I say all the time. The, the profession is noble. It, it's, it's terrific because you're helping people to develop and grow and, and advance. But I, the business is is as cutthroat and, and hard-edged as you can possibly imagine. Not, not for those with the uh, thin skin. <laughs> no, it's not for the faint of heart. <laughs> now, just to quickly circle back. So not only was the Houston Oilers a great opportunity, you know, to be a QB coach and the de facto OC, but you also coached a guy who, when all is said and done, he was a nine-time Pro Bowler, 2006 Hall of Famer, Warren Moon. And I know, you know, maybe the young listeners might not think back that far, but growing up as a kid, Warren Moon was awesome. I mean, a- absolutely ridiculous to watch on t- you know, television. And you look at the stats, he had a great career as a quarterback, um, you know, as evident by, you know, inducting, you know, induction into the Hall of Fame. Define him, Warren Moon, as a, as a leader. You know, not, not, you know, putting the football stuff aside, but what, what made him stand out as a leader of men in, in your experience with him? He, you know, it's, it's amazing that I, I've been blessed and being, being with a lot of terrific quarterbacks and, and he's as talented and gifted as any of them, uh, by certainly, but, uh, you know, I coached Kurt Warner, who's in the hall of fame and Warren is in the hall of fame. And I believe Eli is going to be in the hall of fame. And I think Drew Bledsoe has an, you know, an outside shot of yeah. getting in there, but I, but also a Mark Brunel who, you know, made it to the Pro Bowl the, the year I was with him, and you know, other guys, Steve Berline, who made it to the Pro Bowl when I was with him, and Stan Humphreys, and you know, there's some tr- tremendous players. 
but when you ask about the leadership, I think they all had their different ways. Warren very much did it by example. That's how he led. And uh, no one could ever question not only his ability, but also his, his work ethic. I mean, the guy, the guy is, was just amazing. Uh, uh, had as disciplined as you can imagine with his approach, you know, everybody's familiar now with, you know, with, uh, you know, uh, 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 what do you call it? Brady, Tom Brady, yep. you know, his routines and, you know, his dietary regimen and everything else. And it's way more advanced and sophisticated than Warren's was, but back in his day, in terms of not drinking at all, in terms of moderation with what he ate and, and lifting, uh, you know, during the season, you know, we, we, we throw the ball 45, 50 times on a Sunday, he'd come in Monday and get a full body lift and then go get a, <laughs> a, a deep, tissue massage i mean that was that was every every you know you like clockwork tuesday is off day he would go do whatever personal appearances or foundation responsibilities he had uh and then he'd go get a chiropractic treatment and then wednesday you know he'd get in he'd get his uh his lower body lift and then thursday an upper body lift and then friday he'd get another you know massage to get ready so in terms of the way he approached his, you know, going about his business physically, I mean, it was, you talk about a guy that, you know, was ahead of the head of his time. I mean, yeah. he was incredible about that stuff, but also, and he did it all the time, you know, whether it was off season, in season, I mean, he, he was constantly, you know, doing it the right way, preparing physically the right way. But also you got to remember back in that time frame, this is a guy that, you know, was player of the year as, as a high school player in California. Nobody gave him a chance to be a quarterback in college. Yeah. So he, you know, he goes to junior college and then, then he sends out film because he's working in the film room and he's able to hook on at university of Washington and become the starting quarterback there and gets pack eight player of the year, uh, Rose Bowl player MVP and, you know, all that stuff. And then, uh, and then, then you, then, you know, he still can't get a job in the NFL yeah. as a quarterback. And so then he goes to Canada and he starts and wins five straight great cups. So you, you, you get a sense of, you know, the, the um, mental toughness that he, you know, unwillingness to, you know, to give in, but just going to plow ahead till he, till he achieves his goals. And then, so I think all the players, you know, knew the history, watched the way he worked. And even though he wasn't, a guy that was going to get up and speak very often to motivate guys. People just looked at him and saw the way he went about his business in such a professional manner. And I mean, he would, you'd be embarrassed not to go about your job in a professional manner when you saw the way he did that, the way he conducted his business. Yeah. Yeah. So you jump uh, from, from Houston, you're, you're part of a new franchise in 95 the Jaguars with uh, with Tom Coughlin as the the head coach. Just a you know quick sentence or two as far as the in, like you're you're starting a program from scratch. What were some of the leadership challenges that you know the the coaching staff and the front office had to overcome? Because and, and you guys were successful pretty pretty quickly there. Um, you know, give us a little insight as to how that all went. You know, starting from ground zero on uh, with the new franchise there in '95. 
Well, they had been uh, at Boston College, the the um, Tom Coughlin's group, the the this coaches he brought with him, and and so my last year at Houston, uh, they were they were in place and deciding how they were going to go about their business, what they were going to do, what have you, but didn't play any games. So I went there in '95, and you know we were. A, a hodgepodge of you know everybody's new there was, yeah. there was no unity there was no you know we had a lot of good draft picks that they gave us a formula to let us catch up pretty quickly we had a couple of uh, veterans there was a veteran draft and what have you but again there was no there was no um you know no culture there was no no uh, feeling of uh, this is the way we go about our business. This is who we are as the Jacksonville Jaguars. So we did. We started with, you know, a blank slate. And Tom, you know, had a very uh, strong opinion how to go about, you know, the way the way we, we were going to work. And it was um, extremely severe in terms of the expectations and, and demanding and, you know, and did it purposely. He he yeah. was trying to establish a, 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 not only a work ethic but a toughness, and yeah. you know, and and uh, went about it in a very challenging, confrontational way. And so uh, we were we we fell in line and 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 did did that and demanded a lot. Now it didn't didn't give us much success the first year. We went four and twelve. Yeah. But we did lay a foundation, and uh, and I and I would say that. The good thing about Tom was he was strong enough that he withstood all the criticism because there was a ton of it thrown our way. You know that, that you know you can't win that way. That's that's a collegiate way. That's you know that you, that stuff works in college. It doesn't yeah. work at the pro level. You know you're you're hearing that stuff all the time. A lesser uh, a less strong uh, uh, constitution, and and you're beginning to question yourself. Well. He he's you know he he didn't question you know what we were doing <laughs> he just he he believed in it strongly and again the formula that the league gave us we wound up with a lot of good young players early yeah. you know they changed that formula right after us <laughs> they didn't like the fact that we got that good that quickly and uh, and particularly on the offensive side we w- within the next year our second year of existence. You know, I had come from the Houston Oilers where we had been one or two in the league every year. We're number yeah. one passing every year, but one or two in offense. Do you realize in our second year of existence in Jacksonville, we were the we were the second ranked offense in the league by one yard to the Denver Broncos. Oh, my and goodness. we had the number one pass offense, and we went to the AFC Championship. Yeah, and we actually beat the Bills who in the playoffs who had never lost at home. And we beat the Broncos at Denver who were the prohibitive uh, (laughs) favorites to win it. And they in fact won the next two Super Bowls. So we, we, we surprised a lot of people, but we got beat by, by the Patriots who, who quite frankly were probably the least uh, formidable of the three, the other three teams that we faced in the thing. It was a miserably cold day. We had, nearly 400 yards offense they had 100 yards and we we lost it yeah. didn't matter we just lost that game and but th- the accomplishment was incredible and because of that that's what gave me a chance I got offered a few head job opportunities at the end of that year and, and took the San Diego Charger job so it, San Diego couple of years roughly 
um, probably didn't go as you would have, you know, would draw it up on paper after your, your time uh, as the head coach with the Chargers. What coming out of that, you know, what people can look at if they're just looking on the outside in and negative experience, you know, poor, you know, poor record, this and that. What did you pull from that that allowed you to improve as a coach? And obviously you stuck around the league quite a bit longer after your time there. So what, what about that tough experience in San Diego helped you grow and develop it yourself as a coach? Well, I'm not sure as, I mean, obviously the, the opportunity to be a head coach again, you know, at, and at a much different level, which was, uh, you know, very, very, uh, not only exciting, but a, a very much a, a powerfully uh, strong growth opportunity. There's no doubt about that. And, uh, you know, I learned, hey, quite frankly, that um, you, you need to be in a situation where you and your general manager are looking at things the same way. Yeah. And uh, you, you need to be unified. And, and if you're not, that you, you don't have much of an opportunity. So you, you need to be careful about that, even though you want a job. Uh, of, of the three that I had offered at the end of that year, that was the worst one. But at the time, uh, I, I thought, hey, living in San Diego would be great. <laughs> That's where, we, where I wanted to go. But I, you know, of, of all the things that I learned, because we put in a lot of things, uh, in fact, advanced things that they that they embraced and did from then on after I left. But in terms of, uh, you know, I took all the fine money and I, and I put it together to create a pool for those guys to go back uh, and finish their college education. I'd pay for oh, wow. it. Uh, and anybody that had their had their undergraduate, if there was money left over, wanted to pursue master's degree, I'd pay for it. If there was money still left over, I would pay for their families, uh, you know, their wives or what have you. So I, I put that in. They, they never had a meal plan. And I, I took money from one source and raised money from another and put together, you know, professional you know, uh, catered meals. So yep. we did a lot of good things that had we had time to put it in, you know, I got fired six games into the second year with a rookie quarterback that, uh, you know, that our, our GM selected because he, Warren Moon had wanted to come with me to, to San Diego and he wouldn't, and he wouldn't take him. So, oh, so this is why I say there was a conflict of, of views. And, and as it turned out, you know, it, it just, you learn that if you, you need to be joined at the hip, the successful organizations are, 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 you know, viewing the, the problems that come up through the same, same lens. And they're, they're viewing it as we need to solve these things this way as, you know, and this is, it's an organizational uh, approach that wins that when, when yep. you're unified, that's, that's the way you get it. So I learned that, but what I also learned specifically as a head coach, uh, you know, some of the battles that I had with the general manager, I wound, you know, I let that influence me uh, and affect my attitude. And, and you realize afterwards, you know what, that can't happen. That yeah. you need, when you're in front of your team, they need to see an upbeat, positive, and then whatever else you're trying to convey to them, you know, whether it's a sternness, whether it's encouragement, whether it's um, a recognition that we, this is a way, an approach that we, we can still embrace to get to where we're looking to go. But it always has to be with 
not only do you have a, a plan, which, which we always had, but also uh, you, you, were, you were upbeat, you were strong, you yeah. were not being beaten down by whatever the extenuating circumstances were. And in this particular case, it happened to be a relationship with a, or lack of relationship with a general manager. But the bottom line is that doesn't matter. Yeah. The only thing that matters is what the players see. And when you get in front of them, uh, you, you, you have to be cognizant of uh, the way that they are looking at you. And they're not only listening to what you're saying, they're, they're, they're looking at, you know, are you strong enough to withstand all these challenges that you're being bombarded with? And you need to be. And you need to be unquestionably um, resolute and, and, and strong and conveying to them the, the sense that, hey, doesn't matter what comes our way. We're going to get through this. We're going we're gonna to come out on top. Uh, which is a great segue because, you know, there was a, a year in broadcasting, uh, some time in Buffalo as the offensive coordinator, and then uh, start 2004, you, you're, uh, you started as a QB coach of the New York Giants. And, you know, anybody here, you know, everybody hears about the, the media and all that stuff in New York. Was it, was it as big as it's made out to be as us fans that, like, as a player or as a coach in, in the New York market versus – out in California or in the Midwest, was it that big of a difference uh, from your experience in New York? You know, I would say first things first, that everybody thinks that their media is the worst. <laughs> and, you know, as I found out, as you go from, it's just a matter of where you are. They're, they're all going to be challenging. They're all questioning. They're all, they're all, or many are always looking to, create controversy because that expands the readership and, yep. and, and the, yep. elevates their profile and what have you. Uh, the thing about New York is there's more of them. There's yep. just more. And, and as a result, uh, you know, the, the competition may be a little, a little severe. So uh, maybe they're, you know, you're going to get them willing to do uh, go to greater lengths in order to, to attract attention to themselves, you know, and so, <laughs> what they're willing to do. But, you know, I, 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 they treated me fairly. So I, I didn't, you know, they, they would complain about this or complain about that. But as, as the head coach, you're, you're, you know, you're, you're, you have this idea of what it is that you want to do. And then as an offensive coordinator, you know, I was quarterback coach, but I, by the second year, I was the one running the meetings and I was yeah. the one, you know, on the sidelines and then calling plays in two minutes and third down and then pretty then just took over as coordinator so you're doing what your head coach wants now you're I was I had a great relationship and Tom trusted me implicitly so he would not interfere he never called plays never said a word during the game to me but I still knew what general approach he wanted and he looked for as opposed to when we were in Houston and we were throwing the ball and even our at Jacksonville, we were leading the league. We led the league again in passing. Uh, he now had had changed and modified, and and he believed strongly where we were in in, in New York and the weather and everything else that you needed to be more run oriented and 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 you know you win with with balance and and you know he was constantly you know preaching that to the team. So, I mean, you you know what he's looking for. So you 
you call the plays, you you develop the game plan, but it's still within the umbrella or underneath the umbrella of the philosophy that yeah. your head coach has has you know laid out for you. So even though you know the the run and shoot principles in our passing game, we're still I'm still doing it. We've won two <laughs> Super Bowls with it, and and what have you. Uh, the amount of throws, you know, where we didn't we didn't start with an offense that will pass and when they adjust to the pass it'll open up the run opportunities we reverse that and yeah. we will run as they line up to defend against the power and strength of our running game that will create our passing opportunities so we kind of inverted the approach but it was still you know we'll be balanced we'll attack in with intelligence and we'll have the ability to handle whatever it is that the defense throws at us yeah now, you, you brought up earlier in our conversation that you, you coach Kurt Warner and Eli Manning, and in Eli's rookie year, I believe, Warner started the season and maybe got through four or five games, and then, or, or maybe more than that. But, uh, you know, long story short, his career was far from over. He had great success after his time with the Giants, uh, a Super Bowl run, but he was benched in favor of, of putting the rookie in for, I think, less than half of the season you don't have to get into personal, you know, description of how he handled that. But from our, all accounts from the outside, you know, he handled it as a true leader, recognizing that, Hey, this is the, right now the decision that's going to be best for the long-term future of the, the New York giants organization is what's that say about him? I guess, as a, again, another great quarterback physically, what's that say about him as a leader? Well, I, I, I can't imagine anybody handling it any more professionally any more um altruistically than he did i mean yeah. the guy to be honest with you we 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 stiffed him i mean he he, he deserved to stay he was far better than eli at that oh point. yeah we were we were five and two yep and we lost the third game to go five and three and we lost again to go five and four in a game against arizona which we should have won out there and we didn't win and then surprisingly, shockingly, all of a sudden, the, the I don't know whether it was Tom and the organization or t Tom with the organization's blessing or where it came from, all of a sudden we made the switch. Now, we could have made the playoffs with, yeah. with Kurt, but we didn't. We just made the decision. We're going to go with, with Eli. And boy, did we struggle. <laughs> and we, and it, was, it was some really tough times. And But there's two things that came out of it. One not all young quarterbacks could struggle the way that, and that's why in the old days, you know, young quarterbacks were held on the bench for a while until they, you know, kind of got their bearings and advanced and grown. And then they were gradually immersed into it because so many guys were destroyed because they went out and failed miserably. And then the, the, as you talked about earlier, just a second ago, the media jumped all over them. The yeah. fans questioned how good they were. Their teammates are looking at them. They're not, you know, there's this guy. He's a first round draft pick. He's not that good. Blah 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 blah. Not everybody can deal with that. And yep. in fact, most can't. Eli, no problem. <laughs> no problem. He did it without any difficulty at all. At least anything that was obviously, uh, uh you know, in, in terms of not being able to handle it. But the the example that Kurt set was, you know, as good as it gets. It's sterling. I mean, it was, it's. It's it's a blueprint you'd love to have everybody you know because basically he got stiffed I mean yep. he, he knew he was way better 
at that point in time than Eli. Now, he had just finished up with a horrible injury the year before. He had a hard time growing, holding on to the ball. That's why St. Louis had let him go. And, uh, but, you know, it, it, but his toughness, his courage, the way he went about his business, I mean, th- th- those things were still there. He just physically had a hard time gripping the ball. So the ball, he wasn't as accurate as he, as he had been or yeah. would become as, as the injury uh, improved. But I, I'll give you two examples. When you, when, when, you, when you talk to young people, and I, when, any clinic I give, and I say you're looking for what makes a successful quarterback, and I said you're looking at arm strength, you're looking at athleticism, you know, the physical toughness to hang in the pocket and look downfield knowing you're about to get pummeled. I mean, those things are obvious, but I yep. said the things that you don't realize is the, the preparation that these great quarterbacks have. You know, everybody knows about the Peyton Manning's legendary preparation and, and, and Tom Brady's and what have you, and Drew Brees, those guys. Uh, but Kurt Warner would literally come in every day and say to me, Coach, I think you have a typographical error here. I think the, the secretary must have typed in it. That's how meticulous he was as he went through the, your, the weekly game plan book. And what he was doing was going over the plays over and over and over again in his mind and speaking them so that when he stood in front of the huddle, the play would flow out naturally. Yep. You know, just he had rehearsed it so many times, but he would see a, a typographical error. <laughs> I mean, it was incredible. I mean, I, I was just amazed at it. But that's the kind of thing, the way he went about his business. And I think that then, uh, that wore off on Eli, too, because, I mean, again, you were outside of the, the New York Giants organization, but you saw how he handled that transition this year with a rookie quarterback. And Great. You know. That's exactly right. And, and you know, I think and, – and he certainly had, had learned from his brother, you know, how to go about – you know, his preparation and, and, and how hard he worked and how much above and beyond just the, you know, the normal 7.30 to 5 o'clock day that those normal pro athletes have before they go home. Yeah. You know, I, 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 I give this example. I would call him like probably every three weeks, you know, maybe at 10 o'clock on a Wednesday night because Thursday would be our third down presentation. And I would say, hey, I got a, a blitz here that, you know, I can call it this and you can solve it with this call, make it a four down Louie call, or I can make it three down and you make it a mic call over here. And you go, what is going to make, what's going to resonate with you? What's going to register most quickly there. So you solve this, you know, unorthodox or, or unique blitz. And his answer every time would be, Oh no, no problem. Coach. Don't worry about it. I was already, I, that's what I was looking at. I was wondering what you were going to call it. He, I mean, he's already looking at it the night before I'm presenting it the next day. I mean, that's how hard those guys work yeah. above him. You know, and this is 10, 11 o'clock at night, and I'm calling him. Yep. And uh, so he would go home, have dinner with his family, uh, put the kids to bed, the wife would go watch TV, and then he'd go back to work. You know, right I mean, back at so, it. Yeah, and that's, that's what makes those guys so special. It's, it's, their, it's their preparation is, is legendary. So, because we're, we're getting close to the, the finish line here, I, one question, like, you beat the Patriots once to prevent the 19-0 and year, and then the second time, which in 2011, I thought that, you know, from an outsider's perspective, I thought the Giants were the better team. And in 2007, it was like, come on. What was it like going up, designing your, your game plan uh, up against 
Belichick and, you know, his defensive crew, because the guy's got a, you know, obviously a, a quite a resume and a, a reputation as one of the best defensive coordinators, defensive minded, uh, minded coaches. How, what was that like just <laughs> to put together the plan for the facing Belichick on the biggest stage in the NFL? You know, I, I would answer that two two different ways. First of all, I certainly have uh, the utmost respect for what he's been able to accomplish and, and of his defensive acumen. There's no doubt that he's, you know, he's very special and a terrific coach. But as a competitor, you can't look at it that way. Yep. You know, you have to you, – you just look, hey, he's another guy you got to beat. So, uh, and fortunately, uh, through the years, I've had great success with, you know, when we were at Houston, we never lost to him when he was the head coach at Cleveland. So I, I, you know, I was winning twice a year against him. We go to Jacksonville, we beat him again twice a year, and we weren't, we should have never done that. And so, my record until I went to Buffalo was almost undefeated <laughs> against him. And then Buffalo, he beat me three times. We only beat him once. But in the Giants, we beat him three and only lost once. And the only one we lost was in 2007 when he game, beat us right? 38-35. Yeah, 38-35. Yeah, and rather than discourage our team or me, I came away, you know, thinking, yeah, I hope we play him again because I think we'll be able to beat him. Now, he changed his approach in the Super Bowl and became much more uh, unwilling to give us one-on-one -on -one opportunities with Plexigo Burris playing a lot more umbrella, two deep looks, yeah. and kind of slowed us down in terms of uh, being able to have as many big plays. But we controlled the clock, which in turn kept the ball out of Brady's hands which made it a lower scoring game, but still kept us very much. This game can go either way. So again, I think as always, you, you, you go into it, here's our game plan. Uh, and then you see what's going on and you adjust as you, you know, as the game's unfolding, I'll never forget when I first got the job, first time in pro football, Jerry Glanville said to me before the first game, <laughs> you know, I hired you because, of you know your you know what June Jones had said your resume your success wherever you've been and because of your interview and the coaches thought you were great and everything else and I've watched you teach and I've watched you with the players and everything else but you know how I'm going to judge you whether you're a good coach or not on game day yeah because all those answers you think you have they change all the questions <laughs> on game day and how how fast are you going to adjust and that'll determine how well you know what what I think of you as a coach so that's an area that you know I, I thought was one of my strong suits and uh and I was very fortunate to have enough talented players and and coaches with me that we were able to make the adjustments we needed to make and and do the things we had to do to, to beat those guys two times all right it's coach Gilbride he leads with empower we have a, a quick rapid fire set of questions right here and then uh you've done your service for us really appreciate you coming on today um First question, Eli escapes the sack somehow in 07 and fires the ball deep down the middle of the field to, and you see interviews now, he said he saw a helmet. What was the first thing that went through your mind when you saw the ball go up in the air? Why the hell he hadn't thrown it <laughs> earlier because the guy was wide open, but I was looking downfield and I didn't realize the duress he was under. They played a coverage where Steve Smith ran a corner route and the safety jumped them. The corner stayed outside. So David Tyree ran the post. There was nobody there. Yep. So by the time he escaped and threw the ball, the backside safety and its two deep configuration had come over. And that was Rodney Harrison. Yep. 
And so he was almost able to dislodge the ball. But fortunately for us, he wasn't. David hung on to it. The amazing thing was David Tyree didn't catch a pass all week. <laughs> that Super Bowl week, he dropped everything we threw to him. We were taking, thinking of seriously taking him out of the game, not even yeah. using him. He was our fourth receiver, but we, we were going to go somewhere else. But we lost the kid. We only went in with four. Yep. So we had no choice. But boy, he came up big that day. Yeah, he had a touchdown catch early in the game, too, and it looked like it was a similar right. play. There's video footage of him just fighting the ball like the day before or two days before, and it looked like a very similar play, a little play action with uh, Tyree hitting the, the middle of the field down that's in the red exactly, zone there. That's exactly why we need him in because he was our best blocker. So when we yep. get down to situations, we make this hard fake, we get everybody to step up, and he'd be the guy that would block if we were yep. running. So we would simulate that play. He'd come in like he's blocking the safety, then he'd straighten up and run the post. He had dropped it twice in practice. <laughs> so, I mean, we were hesitant. I had to hesitate call it, but I I knew the play would be open. It's just a matter of would he, would he execute it. Yeah, so that's right. <laughs> he did. He came up big on game day. Yes, indeed. That's what, that's what you need, just like Glanville said. Uh, <laughs> The the That's final right. the final touchdown to Burris. When did you when did you know it was going to be six? Like how quickly you know was it on release? Was it when you called the play that it was designed to work? Well, we you people will will never believe this, but we I had called a play two plays earlier that same play. Yeah, and but it was the three receivers to the left and Plexico was to the right, the single receiver, and. As the play was open, and, and, and Eli made a very poor throw, and I'm moaning and groaning, how the hell did he miss it? It's wide open, blah, 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 blah. And, and then I, someone said to me, hey, the left tackle is getting pushed back right into his lap. He can't follow through. Yep. So I said, okay, good. I expected the same coverage, and I called the exact same play. Now, in my whole career of over 40 years now, I probably called the same play back-to-back maybe 10, 15 times, not very often. <laughs> yeah. I, but I switched it and I put it into the boundary. And I said, Eli, call the same play into the short side, which this play was designed to go to the wide side of the field. But I said, yeah. that would put the back to the left tackle side. And I said, tell the back, who was Brandon Jacobs, just yep. to stay in and help the left tackle. We throw the ball to Steve Smith. He goes for 13 yards. We get a first down. Yeah. I call the same play. Three in a so row. That meant I called the same play three times in a row in <laughs> in forty five years. I never did that, but I did it then. But I called it expecting the same coverage. He never blitzed us that day. Yeah. Sure enough, they panicked because we had gotten down so close. They went blitz zero, which meant nobody's free. Everybody's manned up. Just Everybody manned else up. is blitzing. Yep. And so that created uh, Plexico one on one with Hobbs on the left side. And I had already gone into the game saying, if we get into this play, we'll know we won't run any back shoulder throws or any slants. So we'll run a uh, what we call a fade route. And if the corner's off, which is the way Hobbs played it, you're going to go up three steps, give one jab step like you're running the slant, yep. and then just take off. Well, I knew that because in the last regular season game, Hobbs had jumped all over it. So sure enough, he jumped all over it, but it wasn't what he thought. And <laughs> Plexico beat him by, I mean, it was unbelievable. It, it was so open that that Eli kind of floated it out there. And I said, oh, no, just throw it. But he was so open. It was, it was incredible. So it's just a matter of just, you know, 
feathering this ball into him. Keep and, it in and bounds. Him, just cradle, <laughs> him cradling the catch. And, and so it was, it's what they were afraid of all day long, of him going one-on-one. And, uh, and they gave us that chance, you yeah. know, unexpectedly at that point in the game. But, uh, you know, the guys came through. They executed the play, and we won. Last question here, Coach. Two, and this is from all of your years of experience. Could be a current guy or a guy you coached or a retired guy. Two-minute drill, down four with the ball at your own 15. Who do you want under center? Oh, boy, that's, that's, uh, that's a hard one because I'd be insulting too many guys. But I'll stay with the last NFL guy I had because he was great at it. And in that 2011 season, I think we won six or seven games with the last drive. And two of those games, we won with two two-minute drives in the last four minutes of the game. And that was Eli. And he was as calm and as poised as anybody you'll ever have. But I, I, you know, it's hard to beat Mark Brunel. It was hard. It's certainly almost impossible to beat Warren Moon. The only reason I'll say Eli is just because he's the last one I had. All right, there you go. Good answer and good save. <laughs> there you um, go. And he got I'm not, not going to insult him. those guys. That's for sure. No, no, absolutely. And Eli got the crap beat out of him in the 11. Well, it was against the Niners, I think, too. So just and, – and that right. was another comeback right. win. So a testament to his yep. mental toughness yep. and physical toughness. So, well, nope. Coach Gilbride – you, you knocked it out of the park. I, I uh, appreciate you taking some time out of your day to, to join us this week and, uh, you know, wishing you and the Gilbride family health and safety. Hope you're, you know, wish your son the best of luck too, as he tries to get back into it. And, uh, but appreciate you coming on today. My pleasure, Dan. I enjoyed it. Thank you so much, coach. And ladies and gents, that is coach Kevin Gilbride. He leads with empower. Be safe. Enjoy your day. We'll see you next week for the next episode. Coach, take care. All right, Dan, take care. Great leadership may look and sound different. However, there are common threads that connect all tremendous leaders. They are passionate about those that they lead. They do that which brings out their best and the best in those around them. And they never take the easy way out because the exceptional will never come from easy.